Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan, and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We create this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. Today, I was speaking with Chris Sutherland. His most recent senior role was the CEO of Programmed. Now, you may not have heard of them, but they're a very, very large labor hire organization. And when he left in 2017, It employed over 25,000 people. They provide labor for large mining companies, public works, schools, all sorts of areas. So they're really the brand behind the brand. What was really lovely about uh, how I came to interview Chris was that he was recommended by a general manager that I really admire. And I asked that GM to nominate three things that uh, he had learned from Chris. And I go through those things in the interview and uh, any leader would love to leave that sort of legacy with people that have worked for them. What makes him very refreshing is just the simplicity of his approach and how he really lives and breathes care and empathy. In fact, in his, uh, just after a merger of program with another organization, he chose care and empathy as one of the key values and put in place things that really made a difference here. In order to understand the main stresses in the organization, he put together a simple 10 question survey across the whole organization to identify root causes of potential stress. He shares a brilliant yet very simple plan that he put together to address any employees that could be experienced experiencing domestic violence. And it's really something that any employer could adopt. He also shares two career tips he passed on to his adult children. One was about constantly striving to improve your uh, communication skills. And the second was something I've never heard before. So uh, I think you might enjoy hearing this different perspective. I really think you'll get a lot out of this. Enjoy. Welcome to the Caring CEO podcast, Chris. Thanks. It's great to be here. Chris, what does care in the workplace mean to you? Care in the workplace, I think, has quite a broad definition. It's not only about caring for your workmates. It also means about caring for your customers and certainly even caring for the community and members of the public that you might interact with. And certainly while at the time I was at program was a key component of the culture that we built. And I think actually a key driver for improving safety, improving customer satisfaction, improving staff engagement, and indeed, ultimately, revenue growth and profitability. And how did you make that happen in that role, Chris? You're overseeing a big group of towards 25,000 people there at the end. How did you reinforce that you could influence a few people around you, but how did you keep it, I guess, ingrained in the organisation? We saw it as being a key part of our culture, and we really felt that we could actually define the culture that we desired. So we sat down and thought, what are the observed behaviours that we would we think if we saw out there in a workshop or on a client site would be the kind of behavior that would match or align with the culture we wanted. So when it came to care and empathy, we constructed programs like ringing injured workers at home. So in other words, any person that was injured across the company, we effectively mandated that someone more senior in the first kind of 24, 48 hours would ring the person at home, just check in on them, see how they're going, And the interesting thing about the feedback we got out of that conversation was 
not only did we sometimes get some good information about what had occurred and how that person was going individually, we also found out some of the other, if you like, difficulties that the injury had caused across the family. And I, I remember one incident where you know, the person's partner answered the phone and, and so she actually spoke about how the vehicle that they used to take the kids to work was a company vehicle. Now that he was injured, the, the vehicle was now back in the workshop and they couldn't take the kids to school. So, so knowing that on that call, the supervisor said, don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll make an arrangement to get your vehicle back or something like that. And those kinds of things, small, actually mean a lot, I think, for those families and those people involved. We ran another program called Safety Conversations where we, in a sense, mandated that anyone in office once a month had to go to a field somewhere and just go up to someone they never met before and just say, hi, you know, I'm Chris Sutherland. Uh, what are you doing here today? How could you get injured? Is everything being done possible? Do you think the company supports you, what you're doing? And often now those conversations, you know, an action would arise that you just go and do. But 50% of the conversation was that the person themselves felt, actually, this company genuinely cares for me and what I'm doing today. Yeah, I've heard many examples of how those little things just make the biggest difference. And if they're little consistent things that become part of the culture, it really gets in, ingrained. For the purpose of our listeners, Chris, can you just give a brief overview of your career and how you got to where you are now? I grew up in Perth, really working kind of class background, if you like, then undertook an engineering degree at UWA, started working kind of in engineering, construction and maintenance for Clough and then Worley. And then in 2006, I was offered the job to run what was called Integrated Group, who were an ASIC listed staffing maintenance company, mainly based in WA. They also had an element of oil and gas and marine work as well. So that was quite a big step for me to go from effectively running major projects to kind of running a, a company, if you like. And within 12 months, Integrated had then been acquired by Programmed. And you know, that took about another six months. And then by early 2008, I was offered the job by the Program Board, who are largely based in Melbourne, to take on running the Program Group as it was at that time. They were based in Melbourne. The Heritage of Program, they started more than 60 years ago as a painting maintenance company, but it gradually moved into other areas. So then I, I took on running the business through 08, 09 and 10, largely based from Melbourne. At that time, program didn't have a name or a presence in Western Australia. And we decided that there was so much opportunity, particularly the resources industry in Western Australia, that, that we ought to, one, rebrand the whole businesses program, which included the old integrated business. And two, we uh, largely moved the headquarters of program to Perth because a lot of our back office that had come from integrated ended up being the back office for the group. From there, we, we continue to grow in the resources industry. I guess we reached 2015 where we acquired Skilled, which was a very large acquisition. And you know, that acquisition took us at that time from effectively 12,000 people to 25,000 people working somewhere every day and about $3 billion in revenue. And then a large listed Japanese company acquired us in a, a takeover in 2017-18 for about a billion dollars enterprise value. I agreed at that time to continue on for another 12 months. I ended up staying about 20 months and retired from that role in September 2019. And since then, you know, I've decided to smell the roses a bit uh, <laughs> and some other things. But, but professionally, I'm now looking at uh, non-executive director board roles. I currently chair three private emerging companies, one in medtech, one in the virtual technology world, and, and a mining exploration company. 
and I'm on the board of one listed company right now called Matrix. Thanks for that overview. You know, as a former recruiter, I'm always fascinated by people's progression and how they evolve and the choices they make. A couple of things you said there are quite, I think, very interesting when it comes to care. You, you talked about twice integrating companies where you had two companies that had to come together. And often those companies have very different cultures. Often it can be very problematic. How did those mergers go for you? And how did you try to, and hopefully achieve, a sense of oneness in the new organisation? Well, I think what was always interesting, though, in merging, doing two mergers and two big mergers twice, the risk was always about culture and people. All the other things we could easily fix, actually, you know, going from two different accounting systems to one accounting system, et cetera. So we were very clear about what our culture was, and we were very clear about the fact that you could design to achieve it, right? And so particularly when we acquired skilled, we set up a program which was effectively all the things that we were going to do on day one, and that was all leadership-led, all the things we had to achieve within five days, five weeks, and five months. And so within five months, from a people point of view, we're going to be integrated and acting as one company and more thinking alike when it came to things like our, our purpose and our values and so on. But how we did that was by example. We showcased a lot of individual employees talking about something that they did. In New Zealand, we had one of our female project managers there. And you know, we talked a lot about showing care and also safety. And she told this story about how she was driving home in a ball gown and there was a green rubbish bin that someone had set alight on the side of the road, right? <laughs> two o'clock in the morning. And she said, oh, look, I can't go past that. I need to do something about that. She'd actually been given a, a fire exchange for a car as part of a safety award by the company a couple of years before it was in a car. And uh, she tells a story about her you know, husband think, thought she was crazy, but she kind of stopped <laughs> out the rubbish bin, made sure the people at home were okay, you know, holding her high heel shoes. That's a person that would not have done that five years ago, but now working for program took that action, right? And it's, it's a combination of, you know, if you kind of see it, you own it. It's a combination of showing care. We would have, you know, two or three of those stories every month on our intranet, in our group talk news and so on, right? And storytelling is is a very powerful tool. As a leader, how do you balance the need between performance and care? We've got 25,000 people going to work every day and how they work together, work with their customer is fundamental to everything we do. Mm -hmm. I've never found an example where I felt there was a compromise decision had to be made, right? That would hurt productivity, that would hurt profitability, that would hurt these things by making the right decision based on the value, if you like, of care and empathy. Equally, making the right decision based on how do we make that job safer. You know? Yeah, yeah. The downstream consequences of not getting that right have a significant impact on productivity, customer satisfaction, you know, not, you know, ultimately, you know, winning success in winning contracts and, and, and profitability. In some way, I guess, the program was the brand behind brands. You provided services for other organisations. Who are some of your larger clients? They are all the big two or three in every sector. So, you know, mm. mining, it would be your BHPs and your, and your FMGs and, and Rio over the years. You know, in the airline industry, we work for both Qantas and Virgin, you know, in, in your kind of call it your 
your food and beverage and so on. It's the Coca-Cola, Emmettels, it's the, it's the big breweries, it's these sorts of people. Infrastructure, you know, we have very large contracts maintaining the water network for WA Water Corporation. And I know Program has a big contract with Sydney Water right now, also with City West Water out of Melbourne, so and power utilities and things like that. Public housing maintained hundreds of thousands of public houses across Australia and New Zealand. Education, uh, a big traditional part of the business because program really started. Its name comes from actually running maintenance programs and particularly around painting maintenance programs, which is very attractive to a lot of schools. You know, I always felt that, you know, there's probably no other company in Australia that had a closer kind of contact to what was happening on the ground in every industry sector by week by geographic location and indeed we often provided detailed information like that confidentially to the RBA whereas on a one of their business advisory uh, committees to just help them see what's going on and often we would call something happening earlier than anyone else in the market. Well you had your finger on the pulse obviously. What do you think is your main strength from a leadership perspective? I think it was largely about how I was always you know, a values principle driven kind of person, you know, I would never let a particular process or agreed procedure or, or, you know, some kind of rule or guideline stop us doing what would be clearly from any common sense point of view, the right thing to do. And I think people got that. And culturally, certainly, you know, absolutely care and empathy was my thing, I think. And, you know, I firmly believe that as a leader organisation, the actions that you take have an amplification factor maybe 10 times someone else in the organisation. So in other words, just by you being there or, you know, at a person's funeral or all sorts of things that go on, just just your presence, you had to have the self-awareness to go, that actually radiates out and kind of makes a difference, I think. So an example just came to mind just then, one of our women who I could tell she was upset and she came to me and about how she was about eight months pregnant and I think she'd been to HR and she'd been told basically she had to you know effectively stop work and effectively largely almost be kind of immobile if you like until she gave birth and I think our HR department said well under the policies our parental leave can only start from the day of the birth of the child right so you can take some sick leave that's what she was told right and of course that was pretty offensive <laughs> um, and I agree with her on that so I said well that's ridiculous right I said we're not going to take any more than the, you know we paid I think um, 14 weeks etc and so on you know not going to take any more than that let us start early what what difference does it make to us if it helps her <laughs> great great example great example and there are hundreds of those examples right whereas I'm not mm. rules I'm just going you know let's have a common sense approach to actually how do you support a person who's got this particular issue. If you believe like we do that a leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together, you may be interested in these three free resources we've provided at our website, factorc.com.au. The first one is the We Care Credo poster, and this contains the mindset and values of teams that prize self-care, crew care, and red zone care. The second resource is a poster called How to Support a Teammate in Distress. And this provides easy to follow instructions on how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the Are You OK conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help that they need. 
And the third resource is a building a mentally healthy culture checklist. And this provides items to think about before you launch an initiative, how you do a great launch, and then thirdly, how to keep the momentum going following the launch. These three free resources can be found at factorc.com.au. Chris, one of the really nice things is that you were nominated for this show by a general manager that I really admire, and he worked with you for quite a period of time. And I asked him what were the three lessons that he learned from you that you know became part of his leadership style. And the first one was stay humble and remain authentic. Chris grew the business tremendously over his time and yet always remained approachable, down to earth, and really humble. He says, you're a highly successful country boy. <laughs> You discussed before being approachable, working out if it was common sense. Anything else you wanted to add to how you stayed humble and remained authentic? You know, maybe it's a bit to do with upbringing. I've never been a person who was looking to, you know, have a major public profile or anything like that. I still have a little bit of disdain for what happens around social media and I think the impact it's having now on this current generation. So from my point of view, it is my call it natural style, I guess. Mm. I believe everyone deserves the best chance they have to have a, a successful job and a successful life. Everyone should be shown respect. I don't believe anyone comes to work wanting to do a bad job. You know, people used to come to me saying, oh, so-and-so is not working out now. You know, I think, I think we need to performance manage them or we need, might need to think about moving them somewhere else. I go, I go, gee, that's really weird because I've known that person. He's worked for the company for 10 years. You know, is there something else going on? You know, and often people haven't really taken the time to sit down and find out. And what we'd often find is that there is something else going on. And mm. as soon as that is kind of exposed, if you like, and almost just the discussion of it resolves half the problem, particularly if it's something going on in their personal life. You know, we know that, you know, there's, you know, significance, you know, terribly uh, domestic violence and so on across society at the moment. You know, we know that 50% of relationships fail. And all those things, I think, when they occur, have a significant impact on the way a person's performance can work at work as well. And, you know, that's why leaders and workplaces have kind of evolved to, to go, well, what's the best way we can have a person being their full self at work is to ensure that you know, their environment, you know, to the extent a workplace can and is not adding to the stress, if you like. And that's the second thing that this general manager talked about. He'd learned from you, care and empathy. And you talk about that a lot. He said here, you introduced those two words in 2011 and 14. But most importantly, Chris visibly demonstrated this from the top. And I think that last example you gave is, is very much in line with that as well. And then the third thing was fun and high performing can go together. The growth of the integrated then program businesses was significant. Yet Chris could always be heard having a laugh or cracking a joke. A fair few of them were dad jokes. <laughs> well, dad jokes, I think. <laughs> well, so, you know, ultimately, it must feel wonderful to know that you've influenced someone at a stage in their career where they're really growing and they really want to incorporate that care in their workplace as well. It must feel good. I'll have to send this person a bottle of wine now. I think <laughs> I appreciate that. You know, when it comes to kind of fun, I think, you know, different organisations have taken that kind of word down different paths. You know, to some degree, I've always thought, you know, there actually are more important things in life than work, actually. And this whole idea that 
there's financial KPIs, all these sorts of other measures and so on, right? Absolutely, we've got to measure ourselves against our targets. And if we're behind those targets, understand, you know, why and what we can be done to improve, et cetera, right? But at the same time, right, you know, I didn't want people kind of going home, you know, and, you know, completely stressed out about it, which really then affects their mental health and actually affects their ability to actually improve to deliver the target in the first place. I mean, it's not a great way to do it. And I always thought you can still have what might be considered hard or difficult conversation, but always couch it on the idea of, you know, improvement rather than kind of criticism of performance, if you like. And, you know, one of the things I did with my, all my direct reports, you know, for about 10 years was that whilst, you know, over the years, different ways to kind of do an annual kind of formal review appraisal, those sorts of things would, would come within our systems, right? I largely tried to encourage everyone in the organization, and I led my example myself, that really you just want to have a good conversation with a person, right? And, and my idea would be is that go and spend a couple of hours over lunch or a, or, or a coffee with your direct report, right? And particularly just go, let's just over the past 12 months, what do we think three things that didn't go so well? What could we do about it? Let's just write that down. Mm. Now going forward, what are the three things that we think we could really fix, improve? And that can be about your own individual kind of, performance, if you like, or methods and so on, at, you know, your own management, as well as, you know, the business unit you run, if you like. So the idea is that it's a simple conversation. It's about what's gone wrong, how do we fix it, what are three things we want to take forward. And I'd write a letter to each of my direct reports every year, just outlining, going, thanks for a great conversation. I know it was a difficult year. We felt that we could have done better than we did in these particular areas. However, I still recognise that we, we actually did this and did that. But going forward, let's really focus on this is, and as we agreed, you're going to now restructure this, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And, you know, let's see how we go in a year's time. And just and just made that an annual event. And again, I think taking it out of the office for me was important, making it conversational rather than trying to tick boxes and fill forms. Just that kind of style, again, with care and empathy. And, and yeah. Get behind the person, understand what their issues are if they're struggling. Yeah, great examples, really practical. The letters you sent, were they typed or handwritten? Well, they were actually typed because I typed them myself. (laughs) (laughs) But I do believe in the power of a little handwritten thank you card and those sorts of things. And one of the other things that we did, and it got quite difficult with 25,000 people, was that on a person's anniversary, I'd I'd send them a letter. And I'd personally sign it. I read every one of them, right? Yeah. yeah. And whilst there was, it, sure, it was a standard template that would kind of change each year, right? Where I had a little bit of knowledge of that person or where they work, I would often then handwrite something at the bottom. Yeah. And, and by the way, uh, you know, well done for this or maybe even a joke sometimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. that person. You know, those sorts of things. For something so simple, I was always amazed the letters that people would write me back. That letter's still on my fridge. My kids read it every day, you know, da da da. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? You know, little things can have such a big impact. They really can. We would also give them a, uh, a gift card, if you like, with it. At 40 years, we would give them two business class around the world air tickets, which probably you can't do now. It's not going to work so well. Wow. And that was the kind of level of kind of thought. And um, yeah. they were always stunned by that. In your role as CEO, you know, obviously there's people are geographically dispersed, there are various sites. 
Was there any way you kept your finger on the pulse of the mental health of the organisation? Certainly after we bought Skilled, we really kind of felt that with so many people, we have no IP patents or we have no goal on the ground. It's all about how our people be their best self and work effectively every day. Mental health was becoming a bigger issue in society and, and I think even as, as a leadership group ourselves, we were starting to understand it more. You know, one thing I'd say is when you've got 25,000 people, it's a small town, right? Yeah. You think about everything that happens in a small town happens in our organisation every month, right? You know, mm. so unfortunately that includes suicide, right? Mm. Having had some concern about some of these things that we're hearing about from a mental health point of view across our organisation, we decided to kind of do a couple of things. One, we researched, you know, what we thought was some best practice around some of these areas, right? And, and we identified a couple of professors at Nottingham University who had done some really significant research to establish what they considered are the 10 main, if you like, they would call them psychosocial hazards in the workplace. Yeah. These are the stresses. It's about job content, workload and work pace, work schedule, a whole range of things like that. And so we put those into some kind of very you know, plain English kind of questions and created a, what we really called, you know, a kind of a mental health survey. We didn't title it that because yeah. I feel like people kind of react differently to that. And we yeah. always said that we wanted to have a, a mentally healthy workplace. Mm. So we did that survey to create a bit of a baseline about where we felt we were and we effectively created our own kind of index or score, if you like, individually against those 10 areas, hazards, if you like, as well as a number all together. We just created it ourselves, you know. Mm. Weighting of 10% again each one, each one, mm. you know, people rated between zero and 10, that kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. And then we were able to measure that going forward and we could see how we had improved in certain areas and hadn't improved in others. What was good about that whole thing is, is that when we went into a work site for the first time, you know, we often took over a work site of a customer to maintain their assets. They, they may have been self-maintaining and now they've outsourced. And we would do a whole work site safety review. You know, we're looking at traffic management, all these sorts of things. Well, now we had a kind of bit of a tool to do a bit of a kind of a mental health check, if you like. And we inbuilt it largely like we do in the rest of safety, you know, and, and you know, that, that just kind of rolled out into a whole range of extra things that we found ourselves could do, you know. You know, for instance, kind of workload and scheduling in our patents and, and tr other trade areas of business was always a critical stressor because we'd have our manager supervisor, we've just won this big job, we've got to start on Monday, da, da, da. oh, well, you know, I haven't finished the last job, oh, you're just going to have to find a way, you know. Can you start early? Can you do this right? And we're always clashing against people's program of what they had to do during that week, you know. Mm. <laughs> Concert, mm. We've got this. I, I'm actually coaching my kids' soccer team, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we tried to explain, you know, through this program to our supervisors the stresses that it create and actually how that actually it's a hazard, if you like, just like any other hazard. And why can't we change our system of work, including planning, to reduce that? And really what that meant, right, is, is that, you know, before each of school holidays, have a meeting with your crew and just establish who's available with some flexibility to, you know, you know, do extra work and where are days or weeks that really you've got to block off. There's no way I can actually contribute anymore. So not necessarily you're on holidays, but actually you, I might be trying to maintain a bit more of a mm. career 
clock status or, or whatever because mm. during school holidays, we, we always had a lot of overtime because the schools always load extra work onto us and everything has to be finished before the first day of school comes back. Yeah. <laughs> and at the same time, all our staff have got kids from home where they want to have holidays. But by having that conversation and everybody feeling like they're making a contribution to, well, I'll tell you what, I'm happy to work those three days of Christmas New Year and Bruce, he's going to cover for me then and I'm going to do this, these sorts of things. It really worked. And it was even just having a conversation that made it work, I think. Yeah, just really practical examples of just getting some data to help take action. And, you know, it sounds straightforward, but, you know, many, many organisations don't do that. I really like the idea of choosing 10 things and some things to focus on. You know, that's uh, terrific. In your role as, you know, CEO, very, very busy, stressful role, how did you manage your own self-care? I do believe I was fairly adept at ensuring that when I'm at home, while, you know, there's no doubt that there was things that I would have to attend to, I would also always make it a point that at a certain time, that's it, and I'm kind of relaxing, watching the news, having dinner with my family, these sorts of things. I started work where... There wasn't really email. Interesting <laughs> <laughs> work where we you know, I've got a more powerful computer in our hand than I ever had on my desk. You know? <laughs> it's a journey that. And I do do think that, you know, I had to change and adapt as well. And for instance, so one of my strategies became that I would get up earlier early in the morning and effectively really attend to all the emails, a whole range of things. And in some be set up so that when I got to the office, I was actually engaged to go around talking to people, get involved in my meetings and so on, without necessarily the distraction of going, you know, gee whiz, I haven't done any of those things. <laughs> yes. And that was something that wouldn't have, wouldn't have been occurring 20 years ago. But in other self-care things, I mean, you know, one thing I always found, there's always, I think, a key problem or concern or maybe a conflict that needed to be resolved somewhere that, you know, you just never get time to resolve. And so I used to, I won't say enjoy plane trips, but I didn't mind traveling right and mm. I used specifically task that to actually doing one thing like that a mm. problem that you know by writing notes exploring maybe even you know it's a problem of what's a different way we can make this business profitable you know it could be all sorts of things right but things that are causing me pain <laughs> <laughs> I would dedicate that four-hour trip from Perth to Melbourne and I was always I amazed myself how good I'd feel getting off the plane going I can't believe having spent the time writing things down almost like a research project I was at university where you know, take the time to read a report write notes how how many new ideas or problems were solved and I actually think that was quite vital and that's not necessarily in a plane either um, because mm. you know, we were often involved in going on large driving trips and things and obviously if you're driving a car it's a bit different right but again I could kind of I mean I used to have a habit then when I'd get that light bulb moment driving a car I would call myself and leave myself a voicemail <laughs> <laughs> <Very good. laughs> as an aside I've got an identical twin brother myself right but I always remember getting back to the office, right? And they go, oh, I've got a voice message, dialing in, thinking it was my brother talking, but it was actually me. So. <laughs> Very good. I, I saw a uh, interview you did with West Australian and you described uh, going to Harvard as a real career highlight. What was the course you did there and why did it have such an impact? I did the, um, the AMP, Advanced Management Program, uh, which is probably the highest level kind of management program. It's 
you know, it's residential. I was there for 11 weeks. It was a huge commitment for myself and my family, if you like. I had uh, four young children at that time when I did it. But no doubt, it kind of changed me from, I always had thoughts about, you know, in, in working with various managers and leaders in my career, how, gee whiz, that didn't really work for me. I can't see how that could work for anyone the way maybe they spoke to me or the way they explained something or, or also a bit around quantifying strategic thinking in particular and so on. You know, I had an engineering background, very strong on maths, but hadn't kind of done to a fuller extent, you know, the whole, whole things around different ways to think about return on capital and all these other things as well. And I came away from there feeling quite powerful and equipped, if you like, that a lot of the, lot of the common sense and logic things I was thinking about, I could now express based on solid research and strategy thinking and all sorts of things that we did. And, and certainly over there, you know, we, we got involved in all aspects of management and business. The one other thing I would say that became very clear to me is that I couldn't believe how different different people think about the same problem. If you mm, mm. think about the way Harvard works, you know, it's the case study approach. Every day, six days a week for 11 weeks, we were given a case study. So we did 140 or something odd wow. case study. Mm. I'm in a living group of eight people where each night we would review four case studies that we'd get lectured and discussed about the next day in a wider group. In my living group, I've got a guy that was the head of the Saudi investment fund. I've got a guy that came out of government in Thailand. I've got a, a guy that's running Mexico's biggest glass manufacturer. Wow. A German that um, is a senior executive in a big pharma company out of Germany, et cetera, et cetera, right? And when we came to issues that were, you know, not solved by maths, but actually solved by calling almost a value set and things, you know, they were kind of about staffing, about culture, about climate change, about all these other questions about taxation, about, you know, companies, you know, you've got a question to face about, you know, do you go into a country where you've got a lot of political corruption, you know, what, how, do, you know how do you go about it? I couldn't believe the different range of views, you know. Mm, I guess what yeah. that taught me was that, you know, even on an individual basis and program, right, understand how another person might think about the same problem. And when you're negotiating with a customer, understand where they're coming from because it's only by having that insight that you can actually find some common ground and an answer and an agreement. Chris, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to your adult children about their careers? I've always had a fundamental belief that in an education sense, maths is very important, more important than people think, right? And it's not about being really good at it, but it is about actually being as good as you can with it. Yeah. Right? I do think that Australia has a little bit of a problem there, particularly different between boys and girls. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not obvious other than it's a cultural issue around why twice as many boys or girls are still doing, if you like, the highest level of maths. Mm. I say that not from a point of view going on to a STEM career or anything like that, which is still important, but more from the fact that it teaches you to, to solve problems, and that's any problems. It kind of teaches you some analytical thinking, right? If you're going to be, you know, go on and do a trade, right? When we were hiring painters, the kid that was actually reasonably good at maths, they were the people that came on, end up getting involved in budgets and sales and all sorts of things, and actually mm. end up earning higher income. So I'm absolutely convinced that, you know, it, 
it's a good life skill to have. Every kid has a superannuation account when they're 14 now, et cetera, right? So that was one bit of advice. So I do think it'll help you in your whole career. Secondly, the importance of communication and that kind of interaction and how you go about it, your mm-hmm. listening skills, your care and empathy skills, these sorts of things. And largely, I think my kids kind of have observed that just through the behaviour probably in the family more than anything. But but I have talked to them about that and, you know, they would see that, I think, developing in their careers at the moment. I mean, they're all kind of 26 to 30 right now. And certainly your ability to listen, communicate, work with people, you know, don't think you've always got the right answer kind of thing. <laughs> um, don't have any arrogance, down to earth, that kind of style, very, very effective to have a successful career. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's been a wonderful chat today, Chris. Is there anything that we haven't discussed that you think is relevant to having a culture of care and high performance? I have thought about another program that we did. I went to a lunch talk by Rosie Batty, you know, obviously the domestic violence campaigner after her you know, tragic incident here in Melbourne a few years ago. And I came out of that going, gee whiz, right? We hear a lot of companies and they've got policies and they can provide people some leave when they're faced with you know, a domestic family violence situation, et cetera. But I kind of felt like it's scratching the surface. So I came out of that. I actually caught up with Guru. I said, look, we're a big organization now. What can, what can we do to give practical help? And so we created a, a program that basically said the resources of the entire company is available to help any employee who is faced with domestic violence situation. Cash, accommodation, a computer, a mobile phone, these sorts of things. Because in our research, what we found is often those things are controlled by a controlling partner. And to escape, they've got to get access to those sorts of things. And again, interestingly, when we started to try to, to write and implement it, you know, some of my heart HR people would kind of go, oh, we've got to put some limits on this. I said, no limits. I said, it's just going to be one page. The resources of the company are available to help you. If you need cash, da, da, da. And we then went and trade four my direct reports, two male and two female, with their mobile phone numbers to the whole network, which, which is always available anyway, I guess. But say, so, hey, if you need help, you know, there are these domestic violence hotlines and so on, right? But they can't necessarily help you straight away because they'll basically tell you, you know, call the police. And we're not saying we're interfering in the, you know, if there's a, a violent situation, the police need to be there. But what we're saying is if you need help, we'll help you. You know, I think in the first 12 months of that program, we did help 15 women, employees of ours, which just surprised me, the number, and then I go, well, we're just scratching the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was, yeah, it was a great thing. And it's not, it's not difficult for any company to do that. What a fantastic example. And I really like the fact that, you know, it wasn't too bureaucratic. It was very, as you say, one page and they can talk directly with senior leaders to help make it happen. And those stories, you know, of doing that, I'm sure would have uh, spread far and wide. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure speaking today, Chris. I uh, really appreciate your really practical insights about how you built both a culture of care and also a culture of high performance. Thanks very much. Thank you, Ray. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you are interested in seeing details about our scalable We Care Mental Health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical, 
and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Please subscribe by clicking the button below. We really would love to have you as part of the care movement. Thanks for joining us.